Welcome to Access Utah. I'm Tom Williams. Most U.S. cities are beginning to understand the value of walkability in no small part due to the work of Jeff Speck and his best-selling book, Walkable City. Yet few cities actually know how to become walkable. Created in response to reader demand for an actionable guide, Walkable City Rules, 101 Steps to Making Better Places, is a toolkit for creating healthier, more livable, more sustainable places. It's out now from Jeff Speck. Rules range from invest in attainable housing downtown and decouple and share parking to bag pedestrian countdown clocks and don't let terrorists design your city. Other roles relate to tactical urbanism, congestion, pricing, parking, transit, street design, cycling facilities, and more. Bolstered by real-life examples from cities ranging from large and small across the U.S. Uh, Jeff Speck is a city planner and urban designer who, through writing lectures and built work, advocates internationally for more walkable cities. He's author of the best-selling books, Walkable City, How Downtown Can Save America One Step at a Time, and co-author of Suburban Nation, The Rise of Sprawl and Decline of the American uh, Dream. And uh, Jeff Speck will be in Salt Lake City uh, coming up on the uh, 28th of uh, this month. He'll offer a keynote lunch and interactive workshop as part of Salt Lake County's Regional Solutions Series. That's Wednesday, August 28th, 11.30 a.m. to 4 p.m. at Vivint Smart Home Arena, the Jazz 100 Club there. And uh, Jeff Speck joins us for the hour. Thanks for joining us. Hey, it's my pleasure, Tom. Thanks for having me. So this uh, sounds like a, a quite the event here in Salt Lake City. You'll take a few hours there to... Uh, to offer an interactive uh, workshop. Um, I want to start with just a couple of things from Walkable City, and then we'll transition, of course, to Walkable City rules. Um, you mentioned in, in that book, Walkable City, that uh, when you're engaged to uh, plan a downtown, uh, you like to move there uh, for at least a month with your family. Yes, you know, um, uh, <laughs> that was written... I hate to kind of take the polish off the, the stone, uh, but that was written at a time when my children were not yet school age. <laughs> I see. So okay, things my, have changed a little my, bit, yeah. <laughs> uh, so that will that, that can still happen uh, in the summer, and I love to take jobs over the summer that offer that opportunity. Um, but you can imagine the, uh, the itinerant nomadic planner uh, who all of a sudden has kids in school. That has changed. I have to say that at the time it was very true, and it... Uh, it was really uh, a, a great way to get to know a community even better. Um, our standard practice, though, when we do planning in a community is to, um, is to spend a good solid chunk of time there uh, and, and, you know, have the doors open for a week or two uh, in a solid stretch because, you know, I always say to plan a place, well, you have to not be from there because if you're there, you actually know too much. You know all the impediments and all the, 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 the people who are in the way of change. Um, but uh, given that, uh, there's, a, there's so much that you don't know that the, the, the more time you spend on the ground, uh, the, the better you'll do. And it's the chance meetings, right? The, the, the chance encounters where you get a lot of information. Uh, it's usually kind of the secretive after-dinner conversations in people's kitchens where, uh, you know, you've had meetings all day that have been official and set up and a lot of people around a table, and you get a lot of great information. But then, of course, uh, after dinner, and and if I can say this in in Utah, and perhaps a couple drinks, uh, you get a lot more information <laughs> out of your uh, out of your audience. 
Right. It just might be variability in what you're drinking, I guess, uh, in Utah. Exactly. Um, so uh, you you wrote in that book, uh, Walkable City, the, the pedestrian is the canary in the coal mine of urban livability. Um, how so? Well, I think, you know, more and more cities have come to realize that um, the, the probably the greatest indicator of whether they're, they're downtowns or they're uh, you know, neighborhood centers are vital is whether people are around walking, uh, not around driving. Um, although driving is not a problem, it's just the question, are there pedestrians as, as well? But what I mean by that particular statement is, of course, if you get something wrong, you know, if the experience of walking is not useful, uh, if it's not safe, particularly safe from automobiles, uh, and if it's not comfortable and also interesting, um, people will just make the choice not to walk. So, uh, people are willing to put up with a lot more um, driving or, uh, you know, staying home. But if you want people out in their com- in the community on foot, you need need to get everything right. And that's that's why our general approach when we're trying to make a downtown more walkable um, is to start with something perhaps small that's as perfect as we can make it, and then move outward from there. Because doing a doing a large area half well is not going to have the same impact as doing a small area beautifully. Uh, do you have um, an example? Of course, we'll, we'll ask you for examples all the way through, but uh, on specific yeah. things. But but just in general, uh, an especially walkable city or, or neighborhood, that, and, and tell us about that. Well, <laughs> uh, people ask me, I get the question a lot, what's, your, what's the most walkable city? What's your favorite city? Uh, if, you, if you take away uh, handicapped accessibility... Uh, it would have to be Venice because, of course, not only is it so uh, intimate and pedestrian-oriented, but there's no cars around that are going to kill you. Um, but the, the the many footbridges and other things make it very difficult if you have any limit uh, to your walking. But I, I know Utah pretty well. I have I have in-laws that live in West Jordan. Uh, I spent a lot of time uh, in in that part of Salt Lake, which, of course, is extraordinarily challenged for walkability. And then I've been enjoying both your tracks. Uh, transit system and your downtown. Um, what's interesting about Salt Lake is that, um, of course, your of course your auto-oriented suburbs are are not walkable, and that's that's the case there. It's the case almost everywhere. Um, but your downtown, uh, I, I'm sure you 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 all know very well about your famously wide streets. Um, fewer people discuss what's probably the biggest challenge. Uh, in downtown Salt Lake, which is your extremely large blocks. Your blocks are about 600 feet long. Um, a typical urban block is about 250 feet long, if you, if you average it around the U.S. Interestingly, a study of 24 different cities in California found that when you double the size of the blocks, the number of deaths that you get on you know, non-highway, from non-highway collisions is, uh, is four times as large. So there's a correlation between block size and uh, and pedestrian and vehicular death, um, and it's principally because when your blocks are so big, your streets really need to be so big among the largest. What, what's interesting in Salt Lake is that um, the real opportunities for creating walkability aren't on those big fat streets, which are your typical streets, but kind of in between them, breaking up the blocks with smaller. Uh, pedestrian streets or narrow streets, and you've seen a bit of that start to happen. So that walking around the downtown has become considerably better than it used to be. So uh, this new book, um, 
walkability rules. Uh, you're outlining some uh, actionable steps, right? You can take to the, yeah, the, so, the planning commission, I guess, right? Yeah. So uh, I, I really appreciate your focus on on books. Obviously, I wrote books because I want people to read them. Um, walkable. What what I tell people when they're looking at the books, and and hopefully after listening for a while. Uh, some of your audience may be interested in, in reading them. Um, Walkable City, which came out about uh, uh, six years ago and was for a number of years the best-selling book in planning, um, is really just a, it's a book for, for, for readers. It's a book for people who enjoy learning about new things, who uh, may be interested in cities and city planning, but mostly um, just want to know uh, about uh, you know a wide range of, of subjects, and this might be one that's <laughs> that's exciting. But um, but it, it, it's a great book for convincing people to care about why our cities need to be more walkable, and then some basic ideas about what what folks can do. When that book was written, um, you know people would 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 bring it to community meetings and hold it aloft and and shout for for bike lanes and for. Uh, streets where cars didn't speed so much that they felt threatened and for better sidewalks and all that stuff. Um, but then I feel it left, it left them a little bit flat-footed in terms of providing uh, d- real direction, pictures, charts, graphics, and, and more information to allow people to really be practitioners. And, and the thing about planning that um, if you've been to any city planning hearings, you know that everybody has a voice. And uh, someone who has actually no background in city planning can often be more listened to than the city planner who has many years of education and experience. And while some of us in the profession might find that frustrating, um, I'm much more interested in empowering the the person who shows up at the meeting um, and wants to both make good choices but also know how to win the arguments. So Walkable City Rules is actually, uh, the subtitle is 101 Steps to Making Better Places, and it's 101 rules. And each rule is two pages long with pictures and charts and data, um, and it's really meant to be more of a manual. So I always tell folks, if they're interested in learning about city planning or convincing people to, to, to do city planning better, then Walkable City is the tool. But if they're doing the work themselves or if they're activists or they want to change their community or kind of roll up their sleeves and do some tactical urbanism on their own, um, then Walkable City Rules is is designed to, to serve that purpose. Uh, by the way, I'm just curious, that, that... It uh, uh, must be gratifying to, to see examples of people at uh, city planning meetings holding aloft walkable cities. And... Well, I, I, I guess I mention it for that reason. <laughs> but, <laughs> but um, you know, the, the, it's very often, and, and this is obviously a function of what I'm experiencing by virtue of my book getting around, and, uh, and I, get, I get called to places where my book is, and I don't get called to places where my book isn't. Um, but very often when I arrive in a city to do work, um, you know, it's been distributed to the whole city council, to the whole planning commission. And uh, I did a job recently in Tulsa. I did a walkability study, which is one of the prime ways that I, um, uh, you know, exert my practice. Um, I did a walkability study in Tulsa, where before I started, there were about 150 books distributed around the community. And, and it, it's really, um, you know, w- the, the challenge being a city planner, uh, particularly one who's trying to spread best practices around the, the, the world, and especially uh, around America. And by the way, that's, that's the role I see for myself. There are, there are a lot of good city planners, but I'm, I'm the one who, um, who's really trying to, to make this a popular discourse that, that everyone can, can uh, participate in. Um, 
but the, the challenge is you go to a place to do a plan, and you lecture and you educate and you have uh, interaction and fact-finding, and you spend a lot of time with a lot of people. And, and at a certain point through that time, the folks become uh, conversant and actually quite intelligent about making the right choices. Like the, one of the first things you teach them is um, if you add lanes to that street, you're just inviting more traffic. And the data all show that when you widen highways, you end up with more congestion, not less. So there's a lot of little lessons like that to teach. And anyway, you, you do that in a place, and it's just it's super gratifying. But then you show up in the next place, and you're starting all over again. And literally, you know, you're Sisyphus pushing pushing the rock back up the hill. And I, I thought I I thought I taught all this stuff already, but of course it's a different place. And and so the the purpose of the books. And the other t- that we use, like you, you know, like TED Talks and that sort of thing, is to spread the material further than I can spread myself. And, um, you know, and, and, and what's in my book is really, it's not just, in fact, a very small part of it is stuff that I've come up with. It's, it's essentially a gathering of all the best techniques and, and thought that, there, that I've been able to find in, in the practice of, of making cities better. Uh, I want to have you talk, before we go to a break, I want to have you uh, talk a bit about uh, the, you know, the reasons. Um, because uh, and, uh, I guess a way to get into this is, uh, are you making progress? Are, are people who agree with you making progress? Because there are still people that, you know, that love suburbia and love the car and uh, let's get the bikes off the street and and who cares about uh, pedestrians? Um, I'm sure there are yeah, so people that, out there with those, those few- views. There's a few different questions there. I think I could talk a lot about how we're making progress, and I'm excited to do so. I think what's most important to understand is that um, if you're interested in the suburban lifestyle, if you're interested in needing your car to accomplish every single aspect of your life, um, that's what we've got for you in America. You know, the supply of that sort of lifestyle is tremendous, Um, you know, fully... 65% 65% of our housing stock is the single-family house in drivable suburbia, uh, you know, sitting alone with a bunch of other houses around it with no shops, uh, no place to work, uh, you know, no, nothing else walkable within, within uh, close proximity. Um, and so actually what we've done in the U.S. is we've oversupplied one lifestyle. For many people, the lifestyle they desire for their kids, you've got this period when your kids between five and that may be, in fact, the best choice for you if that's what you want. But um, 85% of the next 100 million households that are going to be generated uh, are to be child. And we have these uh, two huge demographic. Excuse, excuse, uh, pardon, uh, uh, you're cutting out just a little bit. I don't know when you put the uh, phone a little close to your mouth, or I'm not sure how we solved that. But uh, I'm very sorry about that. Uh, modern technology, because yeah. what I'm saying. Uh, is very important to me, so I want to make sure I'm heard. I now have yeah. an additional bar. Is that a little better? Yeah, that's that seems to be a little okay. better there. Yeah, mm-hmm. I'm very sorry about that. So, um, what I was saying was that the um, you know the vast majority of the built landscape is the single family home uh, that might be ideal for folks uh, of family age, you know, with kids five to twenty. Um, but for the remainder of our lives, we we actually um, do better. You know, we don't care so much about the big house or the big big yard or the access to the school, um, and we are much more interested in, in what cities have to offer us. So you have these two huge demographic bubbles of the uh, the baby boomers 
who are post-family and the millennials who are pre-family who are looking for places to live, and the challenge isn't convincing them to live more urban lives. So 77% of millennials say they want to live in America's urban cores. Um, the challenge is uh, providing it for them at a price they can afford because there's this huge mismatch between supply and demand. And, and so I'm not worried about people who want the suburban life. I'm worried about providing the alternative to those who want something different. Yeah, that's, that's a good point. Uh, we've certainly built America for people who like uh, suburbia, but uh, as you say, increasing numbers of people want, uh, want the other lifestyle. Um, let's do take a break now. When we come back, more with uh, Jeff Speck. He is a renowned uh, city planner, author of Walkable City Now, Walkable City Rules, 101 Steps to Making Better Places. And uh, Jeff Speck is going to be in Salt Lake City on the 28th, August 28th. That's a Wednesday, 11.30 a.m. to 4 p.m. Uh, so an and it's actually, my birth, it's actually my birthday. That's your birthday. So that's a great birthday present. <laughs> well, great. Um, and uh, he will offer keynote lunch and interactive workshop as part of Salt Lake County's Regional Solutions Series. Uh, so that's at Vivint Smart Home Arena at the Jazz 100 Club there, Wednesday, August 28th. Uh, 11.30 a.m. to 4 p.m. The new book is, as I mentioned, Walkable City Rules. We'll have more following this break. Programming on Utah Public Radio is brought to you in part by our members and Intermountain Healthcare, a not-for-profit healthcare system with 23 hospitals and 170 medical clinics located throughout the Intermountain West. Intermountain Healthcare also offers managed care under the insurance brand Select Health. Information at intermountainhealthcare.org. Utah Public Radio and the Utah State University Center for Persons with Disabilities is working with Utah organizations to bring you a new UPR original series, Project Resilience. Through caring conversations, we will provide tips on how to deal with trauma, as well as an online directory to connect you to community support service and provide ways to help individuals with intellectual and developmental disabilities receive mental health services. Project Resilience, only on Utah Public Radio. Set sail for the Caribbean with us on the next Putumayo World Music Hour. We'll visit Kingston Harbor and Montego Bay and dance to the pulsing tropical beat of reggae and other island styles. One love, one I'm Rosalie Howarth. Join us for Jamaica, the next Putumayo World Music Hour. Join us Friday night at 10 on Utah Public Radio. Thanks for listening to Access Utah. We have with us uh, for the hour Jeff Speck, who is a city planner and urban designer, and uh, his books include Walkable City and Suburban Nation, now out with a new book called Walkable City Rules. And uh, he'll be in uh, Salt Lake City on uh, his birthday, August 28th, uh, offering keynote lunch and interactive workshops as part of Salt Lake County's Regional Solutions Series. This is also presented by the King's English Bookshop, and that'll be at Vivint Smart Home Arena in Salt Lake City Jazz 100 Club there. Uh, so, uh, Jeff Speck, um, why don't we talk a little bit more about uh, the, the benefits of uh, walkability? I want to read the, this uh, from your uh, introduction, your author's note to the latest book, Walkable City Rules. You quote Leon Battista Alberti. Uh, he said, A city, according to the opinion of philosophers, be no more than a great house. Now, on the other hand, a house be a little city. Um, you're talking about community there, at least in part. Yeah, and, you know, community is one of the um, 
<clears throat> key reasons why we need our cities to be more walkable. Um, in, in Walkable City, I talked about the three strongest arguments, not from city planners, because people don't listen to them as much as they listen to some other professions. Um, the, the three largest arguments to be made in favor of our, making our cities more walkable um, are economic and environment and health. Um, and we could get into those if you like. Um, pretty straightforward. But, uh, but I neglected to talk about community because I didn't really have that much data. And, and subsequently, I realized actually that both community and, and social equity were two other strong uh, uh, reasons to have more walkable communities. And, and the, the issue of, of, you know, of kind of public capital, you know, uh, civic capital, community capital, this idea of forming relationships and what that means, um, was brought home in a book by Robert Putnam, who's a Harvard demographer who uh, wrote this book called Bowling Alone that you may have heard of a number of years yes, ago. Yes, indeed. Um, where he was bemoaning this kind of lack of, of of social activity and the actual decline in participation in public events in our communities. And you know, he tried to figure out why this was happening. You know, why do Americans go to fewer community meetings? Why, uh, you know, are there fewer people uh, attending, you know, Cub Scout and Brownie groups, all this stuff? And he found that the, the single most uh, dominant factor that determines your ability to participate in your community is the length of your commute. And every 10 minutes you add to your commute makes you 10% less likely to um, to be active socially. Uh, pretty pretty obvious, but we have the data now to back that up. Additionally, there's a study that was done in the 80s that I didn't discover. I had heard about it, but I didn't really know it until uh, I was writing the second book um, by a fellow named Donald Appleyard. And what Donald Appleyard did back in the 80s is he looked at identical streets or, or largely identical streets throughout a city and he, he that, that were distinguished only by the amount of traffic on them. And he kind of divided them into heavy traffic, moderate traffic, and light traffic streets. Um, and then he asked people to, to draw a little picture that defined what they called their quote-unquote home territory, where they felt at home. And he also asked them, how many friends do you have? And the people who lived on the on the light traffic streets, typically they define their home territory as the whole street, um, you know, a very large area. The people who lived on the heavy traffic streets would just choose their apartment building or maybe even just their own apartment. Uh, more, more significantly, the people who lived on the light-traveled streets counted on average 3.0, 3.0 good friends. And the people who lived on the heavily trafficked streets average 0.9 friends. And I joke in the book, I say, that's hardly the best ad copy. Heavy traffic for those times when you want to have slightly less than one friend. <laughs> <laughs> so so what's going on there? Just, just uh, uh, fewer contacts with people? Well, I, I think that um, you probably know this from personal experience. Uh, when a car, when a street has a lot of vehicles or, or you know, cars or trucks on it moving quickly, um, you aren't going to hang out on it. You're not going to cross it comfortably. You're going to cross it only at the corners, which could be quite far apart. Um, you know, in Salt Lake, they're 600 feet apart. And, um, uh, you know, it's, it's obviously um, a goal when you're looking for a place to live to be on a place with, with, uh, without that condition. Um, and I should say that there's a lot of um, environmental injustice, right? That's a term that people are using these days. Um, environmental injustice around where people live vis-a-vis -vis not only big fat streets, but also highways. Um, and the prevalence of asthma, 
which, by the way, is four times a greater epidemic than it was in the 1990s. We have four, many peop- four times as many people dying from asthma as in the 1990s. Um, it's principally coming from car exhaust, and it's principally concentrated around uh, highways and large arterials. Um, so, you know, where people live has an impact uh, in that way as well. Uh, I want to talk about the economics a bit. Um, one of the things after, under wealth, uh, walkability attracts talent. That's uh, Cities are looking at that, uh, I think, very heavily these days. Well, again, you know, most of the cities I work in, the corporations and other employers are interested in, uh, in attracting millennials and educated millennials. Uh, if you ask millennials uh, where they want to live, as I mentioned, uh, three, more than three-quarters of them say they, they plan to live in, in America's urban cores. Uh, and interestingly, um, 68% of them first decide where they want to live, and they relocate, and only then do they look for a job. So it's a very place-based generation, as opposed to my generation. I'm, I'm, a, I'm, I'm a 55. Um, you know, we would very much kind of move for the job and then, and then think about everything else. Um, so that's really that's really significant, and then you know a lot of uh, a lot of the amenities that that, that millennials enjoy, um, in, including you know bike lanes and, and not having to own a car, um, are also urban amenities like you know the coffee shop, the bar, the stuff that that you want to have within walking distance of your of your workplace, and a lot of companies uh, like one I profiled uh, called Brand Muscle um, in uh, Minneapolis uh, moved. Uh, to the downtown of their city just to um, attract millennials to work for them because they were having trouble retaining labor otherwise. But I, I think the economic arguments, uh, you know, there's kind, of a, there's kind of a good news argument, which is that, uh, you know, addresses with a high walk score, right, addresses which score well on this website walk score that rates every address in America, um, there's great demand for them. And there's a great business to be had creating more uh, housing uh, in those places. And that's what a lot of cities are doing. And they're subsidizing it because they understand having housing in their downtown is really important. Um, but there's a, there's a bad news story, which is the larger economic argument, which is essentially, you know, in, in 1970, we spent 10% of our incomes on driving. I should say, sorry, on transport. So 10, 10 cents out of, out of every dollar you earned went to getting around. Between 1970 and 2010, we pretty much doubled the number of streets in our country, number of streets and roads and highways. Um, and what we did was we doubled the percentage of our income that we're spending on transportation. So we're now spending 20 cents out of every dollar on transportation. Poor people, as defined by the federal government, are spending 40% of their income, remarkably, on transport. Um, and we've created this condition where we're burdened with incredibly expensive mobility because we've tied ourselves to this super inefficient system where you can't move anywhere without this two-ton carapace of steel surrounding you. Um, clearly, to the degree that we can have more mobility, more micro-mobility, more walking, biking, yes, even those little scooters uh, moving people around, um, we're going to have a wealthier society uh, with less burden on your transportation sector. If you just joined us, you're listening to Access Utah. I'm Tom Williams. We're talking with city planner and urban designer uh, Jeff Speck. Uh, he is author most recently of Walkable City Rules. Uh, so the health benefits, I think uh, some of them are pretty obvious, right? If you're if you're walking more, well, you're the healthier. Obvious, there's <laughs> the obvious and there's the less obvious. Yeah. yeah the obvious is obe- 
The obvious is the obesity uh, epidemic, and the less obvious is the car crashes, uh, which people don't think about as health as much as just life and death. But of course, uh, you know, 40,000 Americans are dying every year in car crashes, and, and, and hundreds of thousands are being permanently injured uh, by them. The, the obesity epidemic is clearly tied to zip code. Um, and, uh, you know, you might think that it's the inner city with the McDonald's and the food deserts where people have the biggest problem, but actually it's the opposite. Um, the greatest obesity is in the suburban ring. A study was done in Boston where I live with several hundred thousand participants, and they found essentially uh, it was like a, you know, a dartboard and the concentric rings or an archery target, right? And the concentric rings around the, the center determined uh, the length of your commute, also, but also uh, and, and related the, the amount that you were overweight. Um, if you are able to stop driving and switch to transit, you will lose six pounds almost immediately, <laughs> on average. Um, and what the epidemiologists tell us, you know, after yelling about diet for many decades, um, finally, uh, about 12 years ago, uh, this book came out called Urban Sprawl and Public Health, in which three epidemiologists basically said, look, the reason why we have the first generation of Americans who are expected to live shorter lives than their parents is because we've engineered out of our communities the useful walk. It's no longer serving us a purpose to move around in our daily lives because of the way our communities have been designed, um, and that's why we have this tremendous uh, obesity epidemic in this country. The car crashes are a remarkable thing because uh, we kind of take it for granted that it's just a part of, of, of you know life, that there's that risk that you will be killed or, or seriously injured um, in, in a car crash. But, you know, our, our death by car crash rate is in the U.S. is more than twice that of countries like England and Japan. And then, remarkably, the, the car crash rate of places like Dallas and Orlando, and I'm going to guess Salt Lake City, um, are three to four times the car crash rates of San Francisco, New York, Boston, uh, because of the way those communities are designed. And, and when you design your communities in which people have to drive more and greater distances, but also they're doing more of that driving on highways and high-speed roads as opposed to local roads, um, then you have this circumstance where the uh, death by automobile is, is much higher. Hmm. Um, I'd like to talk about uh, mixed use. That's an important part of, of this, right, and, and uh, changing the... So uh, I was very struck by um, rule number nine, fix your codes. And you, you tell a story that a, that a colleague tells. So I wonder if you could uh, talk about that. Uh, Andres uh, Duani, is that how you say the name? Yes, he was my, uh, he was, was my um, boss and then partner for, for many years. And and Andres and his, his wife and partner, Elizabeth Plater Zyberg, um, are kind of the, create, the, the most prominent creators of the whole new, new urbanism movement, which has been driving these conversations now for about, about 25 years. But Andres used to tell, uh, used to give a lecture that he called the story of planning, um, in which, you know, he told how in the 19th century people were choking on the, the soot from the dark satanic mills of Europe, right? And, and the planners who weren't yet called planners said, hey, let's move the factories away from the housing, or I should say, sorry, let's move the housing away from the factories, and that's what they did. Um, and the lifespans increased immediately and dramatically, and the planners were, were hailed as heroes, and we like to say they've been trying to repeat that experience ever since. So you had this onset of, of single-use zoning, what's called Euclidean 
zoning based on a court case in Euclid, Ohio, um, which led to the um, common, I mean, really ubiquitous technique of approaching a city's zoning map saying, this will be the working area, and this will be the living area, and this will be the shopping area. And each area, of course, is very large, and, and there's probably like a drainage ditch through, thrown between them. And, um, and the idea that anyone would, would have, uh, you know, would be able to meet their daily needs within walking distance is, uh, is out the window. What's, what's amazing is, you know, we understand that people often and typically and will remain needing to commute to work and perhaps to school. Although, uh, well, I should say to higher education, not to uh, a high school or, uh, you know, other, other younger kids' school. But, uh, you know, a typical suburban house, according to the traffic engineers, generates 13 car trips per day, 13 one-way car trips per day. And only a, a limited number of those are, are to work. Most of them are to stuff that you should be able to walk to, to the, you know, to the corner store to get cat food, to the soccer field, certainly to school you know, to elementary school or even high school. Um, and those are the, that's the biggest mistake that we've made is to, is to segregate those uses away as well. And, and the, the first thing that cities are doing in order to make themselves more walkable, in many, I should say the second thing, I'll talk about the first thing in, in a minute, which is making their streets safer. But the second thing that cities are doing to make themselves more walkable and livable is to replace these uh, use-based codes, land use-based codes, with codes that care more about the form of the building, the size of the building, um, and, you know, the density. And those, those are called uh, form-based codes, and that's been the big revolution. And if you want to get into, like, uh, you know, what's happening in the back offices of city planning uh, departments and planning firms, the biggest change you see is a switch from use-based zoning to form-based zoning. Uh, this kind of the Euclidean, as you called it, uh, zoning... Um it uh, still holds a lot of cities in thrall, doesn't it? It's 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 just well, the, kind the, of the default. The experience I have, mm -hmm. the experience I have is that when I show up in a place to do a plan, there's almost all, always already a plan on that place, and unless it's the heart of a city, unless it's a downtown, um, that plan looks like a you know a big co a collection of very large blobs, and each blob is is a single use. So you know we talk about mobility and the value of mobility. In fact. The goal is for mobility to be less necessary. You know, the goal is to have less need for mobility because everything is close at hand. What's remarkable, and we talk about this in Suburban Nation, another book that you mentioned that I wrote with, with my colleagues, but what's remarkable about the, about the history of suburbia in the U.S. is that when this zoning began to kick in, um, the real estate industry basically bifurcated into a bunch of separate industries. So first, you know, the housing, like Levittown, right, the housing moved from the cities out into the suburbs, and a whole industry of single-family home building arose. Then people realized that they needed shops nearby, and the strip shopping center arose, and a whole industry of, of developers who do nothing but strip shopping centers. Then at a certain point, the CEO said, hey, I'd like to have a shorter commute. I don't want to drive all the way into Chicago or New York or whatever. So the office park was born. And a whole bunch of developers rose up who do nothing but office parks. And, and each one of these things is financed independently. If you want your loan guaranteed by the federal government, until very recently, it had to be just housing or office or shopping. You couldn't have a, a building with housing above a store. That didn't qualify for a federal loan guarantee. So the whole system of, of development, of finance, 
and then, of course, reinforced by this zoning, um, developed around uh, the presumption that everyone was going to be driving everywhere, and that's that's where we've ended up, at least in our suburbs. Um, in contrast, of course, our cities are coming back because they started out mixed-use. They're still mixed-use. At a certain point, most of the housing decanted, um, but the housing is coming back, and that's what's making the biggest difference in the revitalization of so many urban cores. If you just joined us, we're talking with Jeff Speck. He's a, a city planner uh, uh famous for uh, walkable cities. Uh, he's out with a new uh, book, Walkable City Rules. And uh, uh, we're going to take a break. Uh, I want to mention this before the break, that uh, Jeff Speck will be in Salt Lake City on August 28th. There's an event, uh, 11.30 a.m. to 4 p.m. at Vivint Smart Home Arena, the Jazz 100 Club. And uh, Jeff Speck will be offering a keynote lunch and interactive workshop as part of Salt Lake County's Regional Solutions Series. This is also uh, presented by the King's English Bookshop. We'll have more following this break. How do we define and live with risk in unexpected places? You see a lot more populism when we live in uncertain times, and we are living in uncertain times now. I'm John Donvan. That's my guest, Alison Schrager, author of An Economist Walks Into a Brothel. Usually, if you visit a sex worker, there's a lot of risk involved. Disrupting the way we talk about risk on the next Intelligence Squared U.S. Saturday afternoon at 3 on Utah Public Radio. Utah is home to breathtaking natural wonders and rigorous scientific research, and the issues affecting our natural world are important to the life of every Utah. That's why we're answering the question, so what? Science Utah is your home for all things science. Our team of science reporters, most of them graduate students from USU's Ecology Center, are updating you on the latest in science news and providing commentary on pressing issues. Because scientific topic, from air quality to our national parks and even gene editing, matters to Utah. Join us as we explore the world of Science Utah, available at upr.org, the UPR app, and anywhere you get your podcasts. Thanks for listening to Access Utah. I'm Tom Williams. My guest is Jeff Speck. Uh, the new book is Walkable City Rules, 101 Steps to Making Better Places. Uh, as I've been mentioning, Jeff Speck will be in Salt Lake City on August 28th. That's an event sponsored by the King's English Bookshop. He'll offer keynote uh, lunch and interactive workshop as part of Salt Lake County's Regional Solutions Series. And that is at uh, Vivint Smart Home Arena at the Jazz 100 Club there. Uh, so, Jeff Speck, I want to talk about uh, gentrification. You have a chapter here, a rule on uh, fighting displacement. Uh, that's an argument sometimes people use. You, you, you want to improve uh, neighborhoods, um, but you're displacing the people who uh, are already there. Uh, how, how do you fight that displacement? This is kind of the fundamental kind of unspoken problem with planning and being a planner, which is that if someone hires you to work on a community, uh, the expectation, the, the implication is that you're going to make it a better place. And what people often forget to consider is that when you make it a better place, um, rents go up, property values go up, taxes can go up, and people can be displaced. Now, we, we make a point of talking about displacement and not gentrification. Gentrification is a rather vague term that is much more of a social conversation and, of course, has a lot of uh, baggage attached to it, but the real issue um, is when people have to leave. And what I found what I found really interesting in communities is that uh, there are there are great measures that you can take to stem gentrification, um, but 
certain cities feel that it's worth doing and others don't. Generally, if you publicly bring it up, oh, sorry, I said gentrification, didn't I? I mean displacement. <laughs> but if you if you bring it up in the public discourse, um, the cities will very often just sign on to these techniques. And if you don't, they won't. They kind of need they kind of need to be to be asked. Um, uh, among the techniques that have proven very effective at stemming displacement in improving areas is creating a community land trust, which is something that comes out of Vermont, but community land trusts create perpetually um, affordable housing, um, offering property tax freezes for people who are in the neighborhoods as they improve. Um, those have been successful in Boston, Philadelphia, elsewhere. Um, obviously supporting the production of more housing, but not just any old housing, uh, attainable housing. There's a very interesting conversation where people say, and I've said it, um, you know, it's supply and demand. If you make more housing, then housing will become less expensive. But in fact, recent studies have shown that's not the case if all the housing you're making is luxury housing. If you take a neighborhood and drop in even hundreds of units of housing, but the housing is only luxury, then actually you will not improve the displacement picture at all. And then the, fi- the final one is is turning renters into owners. Um, I was working on a project in, in Long Island at the, the, the least wealthy, should I say, the poorest stop of the Long Island Railroad. It was the stop of the railroad that had the, the, the worst numbers around it in terms of incomes. Um, and while I was working in that office on the plan, there was a pool of folks on, a, on phones in the next cubicle um, who were calling up folks who were renting in that neighborhood and offering to help them get into mortgages in the same neighborhood um, for the same cost or lower due to a fund that they had created that was funded by the developer of the project that was happening. So these techniques are all there. What's interesting is, you know, as I said, some places care to do it and others don't. I was working in, um, in Pensacola, Florida, and we're making a, uh, we're, we're dramatically improving a neighborhood right next to downtown in Pensacola. And I brought this up during my final presentation of our plan, and the mayor stood up after I said this, and he said, yes, we're going to do that. <laughs> and I said, awesome. So I'm glad I said it, because who knows? You know, who knows if you don't mention it, what's going to happen? But um, uh, people just need to identify the problem and then make an effort to, to do something about it, because the tools are there and the tools work. I want to uh, talk about, uh, you, you have uh, several rules in the book, which um, which accommodates... Uh, I guess the recommendations to um, to long-standing habits or or things that people really want. For example, um, the the American dream uh, is you know you have one family on on in one house and one lot, and that's not necessarily efficient. But you say there are ways that you can accommodate that, and you talk about the granny flat as an example. Yeah, well, that's a slight variation on one family because it. It could be an extended family, or it could be a family and a couple other people. The granny flat is an amazing invention. And what's, what's remarkable about the granny flat is that we've been, and, and my colleagues, Andres and Liz, before me, we've been advocating for, for granny flats for about 30 years. A granny flat is an ADU, an accessory dwelling unit. It's the idea that you can put in your backyard uh, a, little, a little shack, which is a, you know, a, a, a one-bedroom apartment, or a studio, you can put it above a garage. I lived in one uh, that was a lovely, you know, single space, 20 feet square above a two-car garage, which then had a, an upstairs with, with a bedroom in it. Um, and it's a great way to provide housing fairly invisibly, 
pretty low impact. Um, the, the tenants are supervised by the homeowner, and so there's really very little chance of, of uh, you know, problems. Um, the sort of, of uh, pathologies that can arise when you put a lot of poor people in one place uh, don't happen because it's integrating neighborhoods with, uh, you know, with mixed incomes. Um, I knew a woman in one community that had granny flats who actually, um, she moved into her granny flat. She, had, she, had a, she built a new house because it was one of these new developments that we designed um, that are out in suburbia, and it was a mixed-use walkable suburb called Kentlands outside of D.C. And this one woman, she built a granny flat in conjunction with her home. She decided to live in the granny flat. She rented out the house. She paid off her mortgage. She was basically living for free. But the, the um, remarkably, um, a lot of people, when the prospect of legalizing granny flats in their communities comes up, they fight it, thinking that it's going to destroy their neighborhood, that it's going to ruin their, their property values. Um, what happens every time it's been tried is the property values go up because the income-producing potential of the property goes up. So, um, uh, you know, I said we've been talking about them for 30 years. There's been a remarkable change in the past decade where not only have communities been introducing granny flat ordinances, but the state of California actually, maybe three years ago, introduced its own ordinance, which threw out every municipality's ordinance and replaced it with a much more lenient and uh, uh, welcoming, uh, welcoming ordinance. And when they did that, the number of applications at the building department for granny flats went from, you know, a couple dozen a year to actually hundreds every year in the L- in the L.A. area. So um, with, with a little bit of a jump start from, from local government, uh, we can see a, a lot of affordable housing arriving in, in this uh, envelope. I want to talk about, uh, of course, there's not time to talk about all the rules, but I want to talk about the section on escaping automobilism. Um, and uh, I wonder if you'd talk a little bit about induced demand. I think something we can understand, it, it kind of makes sense, but I wonder if you talk about this. Yeah, so the, the, a lot of people know this already because we've been banging this drum again for, for decades, um, but it's been known really since the, really the 60s, I'd say, when, when Robert Moses built a bunch of highways out of Manhattan, uh, and they filled up immediately. Uh, and then there's been study after study uh, proving it. The, uh, the, the most important study is one called the Fun- Fundamental Law of, of Highway Congestion. It was presented at the Paris School of Economics, um, and it basically documents how when you add lanes to a major road, um, almost immediately 40% of that capacity is taken up by new trips, and within four years... 100% of that capacity is, is taken up uh, with new trips. So you're basically, the question isn't whether you uh, want congestion or not. The question is how much congestion do you want? When, when Texas uh, turned the Katy Freeway um, in Houston into the world's widest highway with $2.8 billion, um, within four years of that being done, uh, morning commutes were taking 30% longer and afternoon commutes were taking 55% longer um, than, than before that investment. So it's just, it's a, it's a bad use of funds. Of course, why does this happen is the question people ask. The answer is that, um, and it's a long answer, I'll tell you quickly, 
we we subsidize driving in this country to an extraordinary extent. If we were to pay the full cost of driving, the costs that are borne by society as a whole, and not by us as individuals for making that choice, we'd be paying three to four times as much as we pay to drive. And the gas taxes in Europe that make you know a liter of gas there cost almost as much as a gallon here, um, uh, bring driving closer driving's cost closer in line with driving's uh, uh, you know price. They bring the price in line with the societal cost. Um, if you don't do that, then driving be- becomes and has become in the U.S. what economists refer to as a free good. You, know, you don't pay what it really costs. The incentive is to drive as much as possible. If you own a car already, um, four-fifths of your costs are fixed, and only one-fifth are variable. So the smart thing to do is to drive it as much as possible. And So in this context in which driving is subsidized, Anything you do to uh, increase supply of lanes is going to increase the demand for lanes because the principal constraint to driving is not its cost, but congestion. And if the principal cost to driving is congestion, then reducing congestion causes more driving, and therefore you're back at this equilibrium of congestion, which is exactly the amount that people are willing to put up with because they choose to drive in it every day. We just have about uh, about four minutes left. I, I, I we'll just treat this uh, briefly. But I, I <laughs> this just stood out to me. I, I have to ask you, uh, rule number seventy five: bag the beg buttons and countdown clocks. Pedestrians shouldn't have to ask for a light. That just really stood out I'm to being me. A, I'm being a little rhetorical there, um, <laughs> but you know the fact is that most uh, I know that they're all over uh, they're all over Utah and all over Salt Lake. Um, most of those push buttons. Uh, do absolutely nothing. I wondered I about that, yeah. <laughs> well, uh, in, in, in New York City, all but 120 of their 3,000 push buttons do actually nothing. Um, in some cases, they might lengthen the crossing time so that people with disabilities can get across uh, more easily. Um, that's significant. But what really matters isn't whether, you know, they're impacting the crossing time, but whether you, you, you need to ask to get the signal. Um, the, and then, of course, the experience in most places is, uh, I don't need to tell you this, you push the button and, and you witness it having zero impact. So when you witness the button having no impact and how long you have to wait, you're much more likely to jaywalk. And, and I, I would argue that um, the amount of jaywalking that is caused by the frustration at these buttons probably negates any safety impacts the, the buttons may have. But the, the real goal when you have a push-button uh, reg- regime, is to is, is to you know guarantee the free flow of cars, to make sure the pedestrians await uh, their turn, and generally they're found in at intersections in which um, you know cars go one way that are in front of you, so you can't cross. Right then, the cars next to you get the re- right arrow and they get the left arrow, and cars are allowed to take every possible motion. And only then, when all the motions are complete, do you get the opportunity to cross the street. So it means that you've got maybe 15 seconds out of a two-minute cycle. Uh, and and um, that's the exact opposite of what walkable cities have. If you look at New York or Chicago or San Francisco, what you have basically are no push buttons. And when the car gets the green, you get the walk. In fact, nowadays, thanks to what's called an LPI, a lead pedestrian interval, you get the walk sign three seconds before the car gets the green. That allows you to claim the crosswalk, and cars are much more likely, um, much less likely to turn into you in an intersection. New York City introduced these LPIs, and wherever they were introduced, the, um, 
the crashes at the intersections went down by 40%, the pedestrian uh, crashes. So so the, the, the short comment is, yes, bag the bag buttons. The longer comment is that, is that you should actually have much simpler lights the way we used to, where cars actually understand that they shouldn't be turning into crosswalks and pedestrians should have the green when the cars get the green or even sooner. Oh, we are at the, the end of our time. Uh, much else. Uh, pick up the book. You'll, you'll learn a lot more. Um, Walkable City Rules, 101 Steps to Making Better Places. Uh, Jeff Speck is an uh, urban planner, a uh, city planner. And uh, you'll have a chance to interact with him uh, on a uh, much uh, more personal scale here. Uh, if you're able to come to an event, that is Wednesday, August 28th, 11.30 a.m. to 4 p.m. at the Vivint Smart Home Arena, the Jazz 100 Club there. Uh, Jeff Speck will be offering a keynote lunch and interactive workshop as a part of Salt Lake County's Regional Solutions Series, also sponsored by the King's English uh, Bookshop. Uh, Jeff Speck, uh, come, uh, very come Thank celebrate you. my birthday with me, but I'm not accepting presents. Okay, right. <laughs> the present will be people uh, at the event with you. Uh, Jeff Speck, thank you so much. Hey, it was my pleasure. I really enjoyed uh, your great questions. Thank you. Uh, coming up tomorrow, The Fifth Domain is the book, Defending Our Country, Our Companies, and Ourselves in the Age of Cyber Threats. Uh, the co-author, Robert Nake, will be uh, joining me. Hope you join me then. Thanks for listening today. Are you looking for a way to make your nonprofit organization more visible to our statewide community? Utah Public Radio's community calendar highlights events across the state, including music concerts, live theater, classes, workshops, art shows, lectures, festivals, volunteer opportunities, and much, much more. Just check out upr.org and head to our community calendar page. There you'll find our user-friendly submission link and the submission guidelines. You're listening to Utah Public Radio, a statewide service of Utah State University and the College of Humanities and Social Sciences. KUSR Logan, KUSK Vernal, KUSL Richfield, KUST Moab, KCEU Price, KUSU FM Logan, also heard at upr.org.